Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Battle of Dien Bien Phu, that brutal siege that took place between March and May 1954, was a decisive victory for Vietnam, one that brought an end to French colonial rule. In its wake came the separation of the country between North and South, creating a volatile political context between capitalism and communism in which the Americans would become embroiled. But how did Ho Chi Minh, the longtime leader of Vietnam, take his ragtag guerrilla army and turn it into a modern fighting force capable of toppling an empire? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And as we do twice a week, every week, we have the world expert to answer these important questions. In this episode, I'm joined by the excellent Christopher Gosher. Christopher is a professor in the history department at the University of Quebec in Montreal, and he's the author of a new book, The Road to Dien Bien Phu, A History of the First Vietnam War. As such, Christopher has the knowledge that we need to understand just how the French lost their way in Vietnam. Enjoy. Hi, Christopher. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you, James. Thank you for having me. No, not a problem at all. Thank you so much for taking the time. It must be um, the start of term now. A busy start for you? A busy start indeed. We're three weeks in, going at it heavy already. Well, we appreciate it and we welcome the opportunity to be yet another one of your excellent lectures. We can learn from you today (laughs) about, well, a topic that's really fascinated me for a long time. I think that on this podcast over the last few years, we've kind of come to the conclusion that there are two Vietnam Wars. There's the war between the People's Army of Vietnam and the French, and then this seems to come to a climax with the siege of Dien Bien Phu, which we're going to talk about today, and then there is the American war that goes on for so many years. But perhaps you can take us right back to, I guess, the creation of French Indochina, because it's here that we see the sowing of the seeds of what will eventually be this French war with Vietnam. Absolutely. I think to get us started, if you don't mind, there's two things. On the one hand, you do have a Vietnamese state which emerges in northern Vietnam, what we call northern Vietnam today, 
in the Red River Delta. And it goes back a long way into the past, but they gained their independence from the Chinese after almost a millennium of colonial domination by the Chinese before the French in the 10th century. And from that Red River Delta, they slowly but surely moved themselves southward to central Vietnam as we know it today, and then into the Mekong Delta, which is the other big delta of Vietnam. And they create this kind of Vietnam in an S-shape that we all recognize on the map today. And so that's the Vietnam in that S-shape that the French are going to encounter when they move into the Indian Ocean, into Southeast Asia. The British are moving in there as well, as are others in, say, the 19th century. And it's at that point, this is the second thing, it's the entry of the French. And the French will begin to colonize Vietnam. They attack first in southern Vietnam, what they'll call Cochin China, in the 1850s. It's kind of a long and complicated story, but over Over the next 30 years, they will conquer all of Vietnam, the south, the center, and the north. And we get to the turn of the 20th century. They'll add Cambodia and Laos as well. So Vietnam is conquered by the French, who have superior military power in the 19th century, as well as Cambodia and Laos. And it's those three countries that constitute what we will call French Indochina. So Vietnam enters into Indochina with Laos and Cambodia at the turn of the 20th century. Okay, that makes sense. And that's kind of why that when we look at the Vietnam War, it becomes almost interlinked. You can't separate the fact that there are military conflicts going on across the porous border with Cambodia and with Laos as well. So we look at this as increasingly as one geographical space when we look at both the French and the American conflicts. Yes, James, I think you put your finger right away on something that's very important is that until the French come in the 19th century, until they colonize all three of these states, those three states, Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, had existed independently of each other. There was problems between them. Vietnam has its own colonial project as well. But to get back to what you're saying is that once they enter into this French colonial state, they're linked in it for almost a century together. And that will create tensions among the three states during the French Indochina War between the Vietnamese and the French between 1945 and 54. And if we have time, maybe it's also going to create problems during the American War and then in what we call the Third Indochina War, where the Vietnamese, Cambodians and Laotian and Chinese communists will go to war among themselves. I don't want to go off on that right now, but I think you put your finger on something important is that the French combine these three states into one colonial unit and they're forced to live with each other for better or for worse until 1945 and even after that. So it is a perpetual state of conflict. You have warring states internally and you have warring empires coming in externally. Why was Indochina so important for the French to hold on to? What did they gain from keeping this territory? What money did they make? What was the economy? The French were looking for a few things in the 19th century, like the British, like the Dutch, and like others before them, they wanted to get to China. The British had Hong Kong, which they conquered in the 1840s, and the French wanted to have their own Hong Kong, and that's why they looked to Vietnam. When they went into southern Vietnam, that's the Mekong Delta, they thought they could go up the Mekong River. When that didn't work, they looked towards the north, and they looked to the Red River. So if that explains they wanted to get to China. Second thing, they wanted to trade with China. They wanted to have access to that big Chinese market. And perhaps a third thing, the French economy was industrializing. So they were looking for natural resources. They were looking for uh, markets that they could control uh, for their manufactured products in France. And I might just mention and one example is the rubber plantations, Michelin. I think most of our listeners will recognize Michelin for the tires, for the cars and bicycles and all of that. So those are in southern Vietnam and in Cambodia. That was a very important colonial 
plantations that were created. Oh, and just think how important that was during the Second World War. I mean, the difference between reliable supply chains of rubber was the difference between having the tyres needed for the trucks to supply troops to the front line and to take your supplies of food, of fuel, of munitions to the front line. So it, it was almost the difference between winning and losing wars. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why the Japanese wanted to control Indochina when we get to the late 1930s and then when they're going to enter Indochina in 1940 and 1941. That's also one of the reasons why the Americans did not want them to gain access to rubber plantations, to oil fields in Southeast Asia. I think you make an important point. These were very sought after products, not only by the French, but also by the Japanese. And of course, the Americans are watching what's going on here as well in Indochina. So what was the experience for Vietnam during the Second World War? Did we see the Japanese come in and take on the French forces? No, something unique happens. And if you don't mind, I think we have to back up a little bit to the beginning of World War II. I hope you don't mind if I make the point that World War II, at least to some extent, began in China, began in Asia in 1937 when the Japanese invaded. I think we can accept that point, Christopher. <laughs> I think we can take that one. But behind that invasion in 1937 was the rise of a Japanese empire, which goes back to the 1970s. And I'm sure that your listeners are well aware of that. So the Japanese were building their own empire, just as the British and the French were. That empire would move towards the south from 1937, when war then breaks out in Europe in 1939, when the Nazis attack Poland. And then the Nazis will attack the French, for example, and the French fall. And this is my point here, is that when the French fall, the Vichy government comes to power and the Vichy government will collaborate with the Axis. I know this is a bit complicated, but this collaboration allows Vichy to collaborate with the Japanese in Indochina as well. So when the Japanese turn their attention southward, when they attack the Americans in December of 1941... And then when they turn their attention to all of Southeast Asia, they will attack the British. They will overturn the Americans in the Philippines. They will overturn the Dutch in Indonesia. They will overturn the British in Malaysia and in Singapore and Burma. However, they will not overturn the French in Indochina right away. Why? Because the Japanese are allies in the Axis with the Nazis in Europe and the new Vichy government after the defeat of France in 1940 will collaborate with the Axis as well. So it's very complicated, but it's very important to explaining why the French were not right away overthrown like the British were in Malaya, like the Americans were in the Philippines when the Japanese attacked after attacking Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. You're completely right, Christopher. It is an incredibly unique, complex dynamic. So what does all of that mean for the post-Second World War period in French Indochina? Well, one of the things that it means is that the Japanese do not immediately overthrow the French. Now, this sets up a situation whereby the Vietnamese nationalist movement and the leader of the Vietnamese nationalist movement, Ho Chi Minh, he is moving into the frontier area on the northern part of Indochina, and he's waiting for the Japanese to overthrow the French or the Allies to overthrow the Japanese. What is interesting about this period is that he will set up a nationalist front inside of Vietnam in 1941 on the northern border with China, and he will be in a situation of waiting for the end of the war. And he waits until the 9th of March, 1945, when the Japanese finally decide to overturn the French because they see that the Nazis have been defeated in Europe and they now fear that the French will go over to the Allied side. 
And finally, the Japanese overthrow the French in March of 1945. And then a few months later, and this is important, the Japanese themselves will be defeated when the Americans drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This all of a sudden creates an extremely favorable moment for Ho Chi Minh, who has been waiting in the wings on the northern border for that moment to come. And that moment comes and he takes advantage of it and he takes power in northern Vietnam and then in central and southern Vietnam. Why? Because the French colonial state has been overturned finally by the Japanese in March of 1945. And then the Japanese themselves have been overthrown by the allies. Now he takes advantage of this before the French can come back before the Americans can arrive on the scene. And this is all taking place in late August and early September. So it's out of this very complex World War II situation that Ho Chi Minh, a communist but a nationalist who leads the Viet Minh, is able to create on the 2nd of September 1945 the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. And it's this Democratic Republic of Vietnam, this new Vietnam that had been wiped off the map by the French in the 19th century, that will fight the French from 1945 to 1954, and then we'll fight the Americans until 1975. It is true that this period, it's very confounding for historians of World War II, is extremely complicated, but it's these combinations of the overthrow of the French and then of the overthrow of the Japanese, which opened the gates to Ho Chi Minh uh, so that he could take power before the French could come back to contest it. So there was, James, a Vietnam-born of the Second World War, and that Vietnam is Ho Chi Minh's Vietnam. Wow, so he really does take the opportunity to seize the day and take back territory. But I can only imagine that as the Third Reich falls, as Vichy falls, and as de Gaulle starts to take hold of power and reunite France as best as possible and to build up its military, Ho Chi Minh's kind of time of peace, his heyday in the sun, doesn't really last too long there because surely de Gaulle starts to fight back and pose a challenge to take back the North. I think that's the other factor that is important, and I'm glad you asked that. If you look at it now from the French side, World War II, in particular for de Gaulle, was devastating. He was pushed out of France, he went to London, and then he would go to Northern Africa to the Empire. So de Gaulle needed the empire in order to create the army that he would use to liberate France to a large extent. The problem is, is that Vichy collaborated with the Japanese and with the Germans. So that blocked him from being able to go back to Indochina, to Asia. But once he gets back to France in 1944 and creates a new France, if you like, he will immediately send the Expeditionary Corps back to Indochina in order to retake not just Vietnam, but all of Indochina as it existed before the war, because if you don't mind me saying so, for de Gaulle, it's very important to recover all of the empire, not just Northern Africa that had been so important for him being able to have a state and then to be able to go back to France once the Allies liberated it, but he needed all of the empire back to acquire that prestige after being humiliated in 1940 by the French defeat. And I think that's very important. So to get back to your question, De Gaulle wanted Indochina back. And the De Gaulle of 1945 was not the De Gaulle who was going to negotiate for the independence of Algeria in 1962 or 1960, 61 and 62. De Gaulle gave orders to retake Indochina by force if need be. And that's the orders that he gave to his people in Indochina as they started to go back in late 1945 and 1946. To some extent, James, war was inevitable. 
like it was inevitable between the Indonesian Republicans on the one hand and the Dutch who wanted to come back as well to recover Indonesia. And so war breaks out in southern Vietnam early on in September of 1945. There'll be attempts to negotiate some sort of a peaceful decolonization in late 1945 and in 1946. It does not work. And in December of 1946, full-scale war breaks out between Ho Chi Minh's Democratic Republic of Vietnam on the one side and de Gaulle's French Republic on the other. And so the real date for the beginning of the French-Indochina War, some people say it's September. It starts kind of on a low level in the south, but then it blows up in the north from December of 1946, and it'll continue until July of 1954. And none of these are fresh-faced troops. On the French side, you know, you've got battle-hardened Second World War veterans. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think you've got thousands of former Wehrmacht soldiers, German soldiers, who were drafted into the French forces. And then on the other side, you've got the People's Army of Vietnam, which are experienced in themselves. But do they have the support of China at this point? I would say on the French side, you have the Expeditionary Corps. And de Gaulle gives the orders early on, already in 1944, and then it's ready to sail, if I can put it that way, by August of 1945. It arrives in southern Vietnam in October of 1945. So this is the professional French army. And as you say, many of the soldiers within the Expeditionary Corps have had experience at the end of World War II in liberating France and and other things in Europe as well. There's no doubt about that. You're right. I think the second component that's important for understanding the French army that is sent to Indonesia China. It is also an imperial army. I think that's an important point. So you do still have much of the empire. And when I say the empire that's in the French army at this time, it's from North Africa. So it's Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia a little bit, certainly Senegal. So you have an increasing number of imperial troops who will fight Ho Chi Minh's Vietnam, which is very different from the Algerian war where you have the draft and where it's much more French boys. It's true, the third component, you do have a large amalgam of troops coming out of the Second World War who will make this fascinating transition from Western European and as well Eastern European countries and will find themselves fighting in Indochina. Many of them are are going to be in the French Foreign Legion, Le Légion Étrangère, which does indeed play an important role in the Indochina War. So I would say it's those three groups on the French side. So the French Expeditionary Corps, which is the French professional army, the Empire, and they're professionals as well. The Imperial troops are fighting, and then you do have the Foreign Legion as well. On the Vietnamese side, you have a resistance government and a resistance army, which is created when Ho Chi Minh sets up the Nationalist Front, the Viet Minh, in 1941. Shortly thereafter, his general, or who will be the famous general of Dien Bien Phu, Vong Nguyen Giap, he creates what will become the People's Army of Vietnam. Obviously, at the beginning, James, and I'm sure your listeners know this, this was a ragtag army at the beginning, as uh, are many resistance armies. But what is fascinating is the degree to which once in power in 1945 and 46, and then during the war itself, Ho Chi Minh, Vong Nguyen Giap, the Communist Party of which they're a part, will create an army which I would say is, on the one hand, very good at guerrilla warfare. And then from 1950, with the assistance of the Chinese communists who come to power in 1949, Mao Zedong comes to power in 1949, it's the People's Republic of China, will throw its weight behind the Vietnamese. And this allows the Vietnamese to create what I would say is a new kind of army. So a guerrilla army that fights a guerrilla warfare, kind of like a tiger that fights the French elephant. But then we get to 1950, 
And the tiger was to become an elephant, James, if I can put it that way. And what's quite interesting is that Zhap and Ho Chi Minh, with the assistance of Mao Zedong, with the modern military aid that the Chinese will provide, artillery, eventually anti-air force, modern weapons. And my point is, is that there's a fascinating transition on the Vietnamese side from a guerrilla army, which Zhap created during World War II, which from 1950 to 1954 will want to fight like an elephant, a modern war. So between 1950 and 1954, James, the Vietnamese create seven divisions. There is no other war of decolonization or national liberation movement, to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you create a divisional army which is capable of fighting set-piece battles. And in all, between 1950 and 1954, the Vietnamese communists would fight eight conventional set-piece battles against the French at Kaobang in 1950, Nassan in 1953, and in 1954, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. I think you and your listeners will be in agreement with me when I say Dien Bien Phu was not guerrilla warfare. Dien Bien Phu, if you look at the pictures that were taken afterwards, it reminded French commanders, some of whom had seen World War I, of Verdun. It was trench warfare. Why? Because there was artillery that was being shot by both sides against each other. So that's a long answer to your question, but you have a tiger in 1945, but a tiger that's going to be able to transform itself into an elephant and fight in the open at Dien Bien Phu, thanks to Chinese communist support, but thanks too to the ability of the Vietnamese to create a modern professional army in a war of decolonization. To my knowledge, there's no other war of decolonization in the 20th century that was able to fight a DMB and Fu. Unless you can tell me of another DMB and Fu, I'm unaware of it. It's not that the FLN in Algeria were less nationalist. It has nothing to do with nationalism. Nationalism is important for everyone we see it in Ukraine today. But what's interesting is that the Vietnamese, like the Ukrainians, they also have a professional army and they know how to use it. And that's what, for me, renders the Vietnamese case and DMB and Fu as a case study in this so fascinating. How were they able to transform a guerrilla tiger into a modern fighting machine. That's really interesting, Christopher. I mean, the insight you give us there is remarkable. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I wonder if we can start to make some parallels between what's going on in Ukraine. And tell me if it is too much of a stretch, but what you're saying there is that Ho Chi Minh decided to adopt a conventional front and to take the French on at their own game. And it's very much what Zelensky has done, backed by the the Western allies, backed by NATO allies, through material support and certain levels of training, they're taking on a great power that is Russia in a conventional format. And it is that same long-range artillery strategy mixed in with frontline trench warfare and loads of other different conventional and unconventional aspects. So for Ukraine, Christopher, at this moment of recording, appears to be a winning strategy, potentially. How does it go for the People's Army of Vietnam? I do think there are parallels, which you just summed up perfectly. I agree with what you just said. I think there perhaps are some differences in the Vietnamese case. And here's one. The period that interests us in this comparison we're making is for the Vietnamese is between 1950 and 1954. What happens? The Chinese communists come to power in 1949. They recognize Ho Chi Minh's government diplomatically and they provide modern aid just like the Americans and the British are providing this modern aid to the Ukrainians. Now, that's an important first thing. The second thing is, from that point, that allowed the Vietnamese to implement, I would say, a military revolution. So they're able to transform a guerrilla army and a guerrilla state into an operational state that can run a professional army. Seven divisions. They have intelligence services that they create. They have a radio section that they create. They have a logistics section that they can have, and they're able to use it and to coordinate it. So that's very, very important. And that's definitely a definition of what we think of as a modern professional army fighting a conventional type of warfare. And do they have tons of stockpiled weapons that are left over from the Japanese or from the Vichy French troops or that the Chinese are fiending? Not that much. It's a good question, but what they did recover at the beginning didn't last that long. They would certainly try to steal stuff from the French, but I think you would agree with me if you want to operate eight conventional battles between 1950 and 1954, you got to have a lot of arms. And that's true for what's going on with the Ukrainians today. If you want to take on the Russian army or if you want to take on the French army, you do have to have a constant supply of aid. And it's only from 1950 that they really have the amount of modern weapons that they need. Now, that's the thing that's interesting. Was it enough? No. Whereas I think the Americans, the Brits, and the alliance that is behind the Ukrainians, I think you and your listeners would agree with me. And I think the Russians are figuring this out now. It's like they're getting very good stuff, and it looks like they're going to get it in enough quantities. At least it would look that way as we speak today. 
Whereas in Vietnam, during the Indochina War between 1950 and 54, that was much more difficult because don't forget that the Chinese were also fighting this war called the Korean War. And that happened between 1950 and 1953. So that complicated things for the Vietnamese. Did the Russians supply some arms? Yes, but they were focused on Korea. Why? Because they were fighting the Americans. So you have this, what I call the Indo-Korean War that was going on. The last thing, and this is a difference, James, and I think this is important. Unlike the Ukrainians today, even before 2014, uh, and certainly before February of 2022, what the Vietnamese Ho Chi Minh and Giap did not have until the final endgame of the Indochina War was mechanized logistics, trucks, and that matters. That matters a lot. They therefore had to mobilize the population. And so the logistics was never as modern as the other parts of this professional army I'm talking about. It's kind of like the elephant lacked one of its legs, if I can put it that way. And I don't mean that as something pejorative, but what that forced the Vietnamese to do was to mobilize the population like never before. Between 1950 and 1954, the Vietnamese Communist Party and army mobilized 1.5 million people, half of whom were women, to lug not artillery, but certainly ammunition. They would break it down into smaller groups. Food, rice. If you don't have rice, you can't fight in these conventional battles that they're doing. A division, I don't think a Vietnamese division was 20,000 men, but it was certainly in the neighborhood of 12 to 13,000. Whatever the case, that's a lot of food. So you have to supply these people. So again, maybe just for your listeners, this is one of the things I show in my book, is that this type of modern war mobilizes the population. and something that comes close to total social war, if you like, so 1.5 million people between 1950 and 1954 to supply these eight conventional battles out of a total population of what the Vietnamese communists controlled of 10 million. I'll let your listeners do the math. 1.5 million out of 10 million. I mean, we're talking about amazing mobilization for this type of modern war. So I'm answering your question in kind of a detailed way. I'm sorry about that. I know it's a little bit complicated, but this type of war is different from the Ukrainians. I'm not belittling what the Ukrainians are doing on the contrary, but they do have access to trucks and they do have access to roads and a logistical service. Of course, they're being bombed as well. I understand that, but you have to understand the difference here is that the human mobilization during the second half of the Indochina War was absolutely enormous. And that's why you have such high casualties for civilians as well, because the French were bombing these logistics groups of men and women who were lugging stuff down the roads to the trails to DMB and Fu and seven other conventional battles. Well, never apologize for detail, Christopher, because we need to understand this to understand, like you said, exactly how this becomes a total war on the side of Vietnam, at least. And these supply lines are vital. They spread back winding routes up to the border with China over thousands of kilometers. This is something that is almost unparalleled in the wars of the 20th century, but so incredibly necessary to get all of those supplies to the front line and to keep that battle coming towards the French. If anything, it's the one thing that keeps the Vietnamese in the fight. So how does this lead us up to the siege of Dien Bien Phu? It's quite interesting. The Vietnamese are in a rock and a hard place because they realize if they fight kind of a big battle against the French, if they fight in the open, they're going to be bombed. If they fight too close to Hanoi and to the French air bases, even the aircraft carriers, they're going to get bombed. And at the same time, they need to win a battle by the time we get to 1953 or 54 because there's a move towards some sort of a diplomatic solution. 
both on the communist side, Stalin dies in March of 1953. The Korean War stops in July of 1953. And we notice as well that the French are looking for a way out as well when the Americans get out of Korea. I'm simplifying a little bit. I hope you don't mind. But the French are saying, well, we want to do that too. And we want to think about what's going on in Algeria now more than in Indochina. So there's a need all of a sudden for a big battle, both for the French military officers and for the Vietnamese communist officers as well before they go to the diplomatic table. It's simplified, but it's true. So before they negotiate, both sides are looking for a big battle. Now, what's interesting here is that the Vietnamese communists say, we can't fight this in the deltas. We can't fight this in areas that are too close to the air bases. Let's take it to the northwest. So if our listeners look at a map, Dien Bien Phu is close to the Lao Chinese border. They're looking for a battle in the northwest. So this is home ground. This reduces the supply chain routes. It means that you have more of a shorter length of time and distance between the tail and teeth of supply. It means you have a realistic chance of winning. Yes, and that's where I was coming because you're closer to the Chinese border. And it's quite clear that they discussed this with the Chinese and the Chinese were ready to move their supply lines to the northwest, to Yunnan province as well. I won't go into the details, but the Chinese were like, let's go to the northwest. We're with you. We're on this. This is the way to go. And so that's what they start doing. And we get to the end of 1953 and the troops move to the northwest. They want the French to say, "Okay, we're going to stop you here. No one was expecting Dien Bien Phu, James, but when the French, they dropped their troops in, in late 1953, into this valley of Dien Bien Phu, thinking that they would stop the Vietnamese from going to Laos, thinking that they would stop the Vietnamese from going into the northwestern Thai region, it didn't matter. For the Vietnamese, they're like, we're in, we're all in. I'm simplifying, but this is true. Because for the Vietnamese, they're like, if they stick here, if they don't pull their men out, if they actually stick and they take the bait and they battle, we can win this. That doesn't mean that they're going to win it, but that's what they're thinking. They're thinking that we can win this because we have the supply lines, as you just said so well. And the second thing, if I could just add, we're far enough from their air bases that we have a better chance of not getting pulverized by the French Air Force. The other thing, and this is the third and last thing that I would add, is the Korean War is done in July of 1953. The Chinese rush everything they have to the Vietnamese and with some Soviet backing as well. They have artillery that comes in. They'll install the artillery all around the Dien Bien Phu battlefield. But the thing is, is that neither the Vietnamese or the French knew really until the end of 53 or the beginning of 54 that Dien Bien Phu would be the battle. And so when it became clear that the French wanted this battle, because they did, the new general who came in, Navarre, he wanted the battle. As the French said, casse du Viet is the expression in French. That means we will break the Vietnamese back. What did that mean? We will break their divisions once and for all. The French wanted to destroy the professional army, and they were convinced going into Dien Bien Phu that they could do it. They made one mistake, in my opinion. They underestimated the supply lines. They would say they didn't know it at the time, but we know now from French documents that they knew it. Just to pause for a moment there, this is a trap for the French, and they fall for this hook, line, and sinker. And it's all about the real politique of the situation. This is all using war as an instrument of politics to try and get victory on one side of the other. The French are desperate for it. The Vietnamese are desperate for it. Because if one of them can secure a victory, then it gives them a fortuitous seat at the table during the negotiations for any future peace. 
Absolutely. And that is the case, but it's the case for both sides. So both sides are convinced that they're going to win this. That's what's really interesting. So when I say that we'll break the Vietnamese back, you have to understand that the Vietnamese are cocky too going into this. They're like, we're going to break the French back. We're going to make this work no matter what. And I think that's important maybe for our listeners is that Jap, Ho Chi Minh, everybody, the Chinese advisors who were there, they're all in on this battle. I don't know if the French government was all in on this, but certainly Navarre was committed to this. He had to win it. He thought he would win this very easily. Even the officers down to the lower levels, even the troops who were in Dien Bien Phu, they were convinced that they were going to win this. And it turned out that they were going to fight a 56-day battle, which was very much more similar to World War I and Verdun and trench warfare than it was to any sort of, you know, guerrilla warfare type thing. Dien Bien Phu was a conventional battle par excellence. Well, take us through this battle, Christopher. How does the siege of Dien Bien Phu play out? In January of 1954, the Vietnamese were ready to attack. Everything was set in place. They had their artillery in place, or, well, they thought they had their artillery in place. The French were ready. The French knew from their military intelligence, their intercepts, and all sorts of things that the Vietnamese were ready. And it's in the late month of January, Jap calls off the assault. He calls off the assault because he feels like he doesn't have the necessary artillery that he needs to really pulverize the French below. Again, I only mention this because it's not very well known that the battle could have begun in January, but the reason it didn't is because you can see that the Vietnamese was like, we must have this modern weaponry that we need. So there'll be a time from January until March where they will bring in everything they can. And so we get to the early part of March and the battle begins. This begins when the Vietnamese unleash their artillery on the French. There's 50,000 professional troops surrounding the French below them. There is 11,000 French troops waiting for them below. So it's 11,000 against 50,000. There'll be French troops who will be parachuted in to bring the total numbers up to about 14,000 in all. The Vietnamese have to bring in troops as well to replenish their troops, about 60,000 in all. So this battle that begins in early March will take place in three waves, a first wave in March and then two waves in April. And the third wave, the Vietnamese will throw everything they have at the French in order to overwhelm the garrison in the Valley of Dien Bien Phu. So you really do have trench warfare. You have artillery being fired in both directions. You have the Vietnamese who are weaving a web of trenches around the French garrison in Dien Bien Phu. They're slowly suffocating them as Vietnamese troops would have to literally go over the top in order to attack. They would run into machine gun fire. It's a very bloody battle. So again, I just remind our listeners that this is not guerrilla warfare. This is the guerrilla warfare. You never do what the Vietnamese did at Dien Bien Phu. You avoid going over the top. You avoid artillery. You avoid digging trenches. So that's what makes this battle so unique and so violent during those 56 days until the French garrison finally falls on the 7th of May, 1954, when the French concede defeat to the Vietnamese army. And is this because we can say this is a war of attrition? by this point. It's all about trying to pulverize your enemy. There's nothing grand and strategic here. There's nothing sophisticated in terms of tactics. This is about trying to pulverize your enemy so that you can degrade their military force to the point where they aren't able to fight you back, and then you can secure what you want around the negotiating table. I think that's exactly what it is. And to be honest, it's a siege battle. It's the only siege battle that I'm aware of as well, again, in a time of decolonization. 
but it's a siege. It's one of the last battles of this type of the 20th century, correct me if I'm wrong. Certainly before that time, we've seen them. And the idea was this will strengthen our position at the negotiating table. Now, that would be, you know, debatable, but that was certainly the strategic goal of the battle. And the Vietnamese won that battle. So at what point were the French fully surrounded? At what point did they have their logistical supply lines cut off? At what point did they realize that this game was up? Well, I think they knew from early on. When the man in charge of the artillery on the French side was a Colonel Pirotte, P-I-R-O-T-H, he understood at the start of the battle in early March that they were in trouble because he and others had said that there was no way the Vietnamese were going to be able to unleash their artillery for very long because, one, he didn't believe that they could really calibrate their artillery. Two, he felt that the French Air Force would be able to take out the artillery positions in the surrounding mountains. Neither of those two things was true for him. And so the artillery was barrages that were landing with quite impressive accuracy. And, of course, the Vietnamese were pinpointing the airstrip. There was an airstrip at Dien Bien Phu. I should have mentioned that earlier. That was one of the reasons why Navarre selected Dien Bien Phu was because he could supply it by air. But the Vietnamese, of course, targeted the airstrip. They'll take it out in a matter of two weeks, I believe. But certainly, Pirot, the artillery specialist who had prepared everything and had guaranteed Navarre that there was no way they would lose, he committed suicide during the battle. So he took his life, which I think is symbolic for those who know the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. They're well aware of this event. But it was a way of recognizing the underestimation of the enemy and of their ability to fight like an elephant. So this leads to a French surrender, something which must have had a massive impact and reverberated across the West. What were the legacies of Dien Bien Phu? There's many. There's no doubt about it. For the French army, this was a humiliation, which was a second humiliation after 1940. They felt that they had fought valiantly. And I think let's not take it away from the French. They did. The French soldiers who fought at Dien Bien Phu, they did fight valiantly until the end. But certainly this is a second humiliation. And they'll take that humiliation with them when they go to Algeria. And I don't want to get into the Algerian too long, but you can't understand the French army that will fight in Algeria between 1954 and 1962 without understanding at least what the officer class had experienced in particular. And many of them in Dien Bien Phu, someone like Marcel Bijard, you know, who's very famous, and others as well who would find themselves, either they had been at the Indochina War or they had even been, like Bijard, they had been at Dien Bien Phu. They will carry this humiliation with them and they will say, never again, no surrender, we fight till the end. And of course, this will have catastrophic effects in the Algerian war for political reasons when they dominate militarily, but they lose politically and they refuse to accept a third humiliation in Algeria. And of course, that's when things get very, very complicated in France between the officer class and the French political class itself. The second thing, though, the Americans are following this. That was my thought. You know, you've got a point here where the Cold War is in full swing and you've had communist forces having a victory over Western allies. This is not something that the Americans can really let stand. And let's be honest, the French are making sure the Americans know this. True. I would just say one thing. I argue this in my book, if you don't mind me saying so, and that is the American war in Vietnam begins indirectly in 1950. So when the Chinese communists come to power, when they throw their weight behind Ho Chi Minh diplomatically and militarily, when they start to transform this tiger or guerrilla army into this elephant modern army, the Americans are well aware of what's going on. They have information from the French, but I think the Americans had their own sources of information as well. Why? Because whether one agrees with the Americans or not, they were very concerned about 
what the possible communist offensive or expansion could mean for American control of the rubber and the oil and these things we discussed briefly a moment ago leading up to and during World War II. So the Americans were involved in Vietnam. They were providing 70% of the military aid to the French by early 1954. 70%. Uh, It was their war as well is the argument that I'm making here. So they had an indirect war in Indochina and they had a direct war in Korea. And for the Americans, this is what I call the Indo-Korean War. They were fighting on a two-edge front for them. So they wanted the French to fight directly for them in Indochina, and they would give them the supplies that they needed. They were surprised, disappointed, call it what you want, when the French lost at Dien Bien Phu, and the French said, we're out. I'm kind of simplifying, but that is what the French basically did. We're out of here. We're off to Algeria now. So that's when, to answer your question, the Americans are saying, we're in. We don't know yet how that's going to work out. We're not going to intervene at Dien Bien Phu, even though Eisenhower did give it serious thought. As some of your listeners will know, there was talk of bombing, American bombers coming in from Guam, coming in from other places to knock out the Vietnamese before the French would fall at Dien Bien Phu during this third wave at the end of April and the beginning of May. In the end, uh, Eisenhower said, no, we're not going down that road. We'll be back another day. Of course, they will be back another day. We'll talk about that later. But I think it's important for your listeners to know is the Americans were very much involved in what's going on here. I would say that they attached more importance to Indochina than they did to Korea in a certain way. They had a ceasefire. Korea remains divided to this day. But the Americans, they never forgot what the Japanese did in 1941 and 1942. I'm going to take another stab at what I tried to explain a moment ago when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and then they turned the direction southwards to all of Southeast Asia, overthrowing the Americans in the Philippines, overthrowing the British in Singapore and eventually the French in Indochina. In other words, the domino theory was already there. So they had this real fear that something similar to what happened during World War II could happen again. You don't have to agree with that, but I do believe that's how the Americans saw it. And that's why they attached so much more importance to Vietnam than they did to Korea. I don't want to say they forgot Korea. For heaven's sakes, they did not. It's still important to this day. But that does explain why the Americans will continue to, well, take over the war themselves. If the French can't do it, then we'll do it. Christopher, we will touch upon all the points of the American war in Vietnam on another episode, but you have lined up perfectly exactly how that domino theory unfolds and exactly how Dien Bien Phu starts to lead into that American war that comes in a few years' time. But tell us, where can our listeners read more about the siege of Dien Bien Phu, read more of your work? Well, I would say there is a French scholar, and I'm sure your listeners will know of him. It's Bernard Fall. I do believe that Bernard Fall is still worth the read. So I want to be honest. I think you have to put Bernard Fall's books before my book. Hell in a Very Small Place is a wonderful account of the siege of Dien Bien Phu. He has a whole slew of other books that he wrote on Vietnam, both the French Indochina War between 1945 and 54, and then the American War. Well, at least until his untimely death, he died during the Vietnam War. He was killed in Vietnam, as I'm sure you know, in 1968, if I'm not wrong. So Bernard Fall's books, and in particular his classic Hell in a Very Small Place, The Siege of Dien Bien Phu. It is true that I have just published The Road to Dien Bien Phu, 
a history of the first Vietnam War between 1945 and 1954, published by Princeton University Press. Perhaps maybe the one thing I think Bernard Fall, he wouldn't take umbrage with this, is that he was writing in the late 50s and in the 1960s. I was able to have access to a lot of Vietnamese and French sources that were obviously not available 50, 60, whatever, 70 years ago that were available in the 2000s, 2010s and up to now. And so I think that might be interesting for readers to discover uh, some of that new information like the radio system for the Vietnamese army, the medical section. I have a chapter on intelligence and policing as well as on economics and economic warfare. Well, Christopher, we will put a link to your book in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time, for your expertise, to bring us up to date on all the things that we didn't know about Dien Bien Phu. And you are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day, from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross, and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.